it on? Okay, there we go. All right, good morning, everyone. So, we're going to start something new. Um, so, Pastor Henry came to me uh, a, a few months ago and asked me about moving our class into the sanctuary. And so, it's something new. Um, it's going to take a little bit of getting used to, I guess. Uh, for, for me, I've been doing it about seven years over there in that module, so I'm, I'm used to how everything works, how I like to stand and all of that, and then I come in here and it's like, okay, it's, it's different. So that's going to take a little bit of time, but uh, I think we're going to have a good time. Um, one of the things that I do in my class, and uh, just a couple little things here. We're going to try to get started here. Uh, we'll usually get started by 920. I'm not a real stickler for 915, but we'll get started by 920, and then we're going to try to end by 1010. And so that's kind of a, uh, that way we, everybody can start coming in and, and, uh, and getting ready. Uh, for those of you that are new in here, one of the things that I do is I teach through books of the Bible. I uh, started in 2009, I went through the book of Acts, then we went through the uh, uh, book of Ephesians, we've gone through the book of Hebrews, we've gone through the book of Romans, and we've gone through the book of John, and we just finished the book of Galatians. And so we're going to start today in the book of Corinthians. And the, one of the reasons I did pick Corinthians, because Corinthians is all about the church, and we'll see that today. It's all about a church with a whole lot of problems. I said to somebody a few weeks ago, I don't... I think you can, I live in the north part of the county, and I swear every time I drive through Crawfield, there's a new church popping up, right? I went by this morning, there's a, there's a church, starts at 1030, and I'm thinking, you, you, I don't know if y'all know this, but there's 80 churches in Walkula County for 30,000 people, which is about one church for every 375 people, and that's just, I'm like, really? Do we really need another church? And one of the reasons that happens is because everybody thinks we can do it better. Right? You get into a church and you get hurt, you get disappointed, uh, and you think, boy, if we could just start this church and we could, we could just start from scratch, we could do it better. And of course, what you find out is as soon as you get about more than two people in the church, right, and you got to start handling money and you got to start appointing leaders, guess what happens? Then you start having problems. Well, it's always been that way. It's, it's nothing new. They had problems in the original church which is what we're going to see here with, uh, with 1 Corinthians. So today, if you got your Bibles turned, and we're going to look in verses 1 through 9. Some days we may cover one verse. Uh, some days we may cover a chapter. It just depends on what Paul, is, uh, what Paul is, is talking about. Now, one of the things we're going to have to get a little bit used to with these new screens is the resolution on them isn't quite as good as the, as the TV that we had in the other class, but I, I'll, I'll kind of get used to that as we go. Uh, I want to show you a map where Corinth is. Um, you can see, uh, it, well, it's a little bit easier to see over on this one right here. It's still located there in modern Greece. If you traveled to the Mediterranean today, you could still walk the streets of, uh, of the ancient city of, of Corinth. Uh, you can see there it's a little to the uh, east of Italy. And if you look in the lower right, you'll see down there Lebanon and Jerusalem. And so this is where all of Paul's first and second missionary journeys um, occurred. Now, Corinth had, before Paul comes along, Corinth had been a city for a really, really, really long time. Probably from around uh, 6 or 700 B.C. So it had been a Greek city that had flourished for years and years and years. Um, but about 150 years before Jesus came along, uh, the Greeks, the, the people in the city rebelled against the Romans. And the Romans came in and completely wiped out the city, just destroyed it, 
killed everybody in it, knocked down all the buildings and the streets, burned everything down. And so it sat there for about 150 years, or about 100 years, it was completely uh, desolate. But then about, uh, about 44 B.C., uh, Julius Caesar ordered that the city was to be, uh, to be rebuilt, and so it, it was. And, and so what happened, think about this is 44 B.C., this is about 44 years before Jesus is born, and people start flocking into the city. And, and it was mostly, you know, think about who are, who are people that come to a new city? It's not people with established homes, is it? And established families. It's usually, a lot of it was freed slaves that were coming in. Uh, a lot of it was just people that really didn't care where they lived. They were just looking to make a buck. And so you had all these kind of people without any stability, without any real home life, without any kind of history, flocking into, uh, flocking into this city. But it, it grew very, very quickly. In fact, within 100 years, it grew to become the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And the reason it did that, and you can't really see on this map, is uh, northern Greece and southern Greece are divided by a little isthmus, a little uh, bridge of land that's four and a half miles wide across. And Corinth was situated right at the southern tip of that isthmus. And what would happen, and again, I wish you could see it, uh, people who, uh, instead of coming down around the southern part of Greece, if you were selling, you could actually, what they would do is they would come into Corinth, unload their boat on one side of this little strip of land, take everything in their boat, walk it across, or, or put it in wagons, take it across the city, load it on another boat, and then go out the other way. And so you could save like 200 miles uh, on your trips. And so Corinth very quickly became a perfect city for trade. And so it just grew and grew and grew. And again, what would happen, merchants would unload their goods on one side of the city, uh, take them across on horse and carriage or however they, they did that, and then load them onto the other side. Um, again, as I mentioned, that would save people in ships about 200 miles. In the 1800s, by the way, they built a canal. If you go to Greece today, that same Corinth would have been located uh, kind of on the, uh, the south right there of that canal, but they actually built a canal across there in the 1800s to move those ships through. But back then, they would actually unload on one side, truck them across. Well, you can't say truck, right? Because that would, uh, the idea they had cars, but horse carriage them across or however they would do it across to the other side. So that was Corinth's claim to fame, was it was a shipping city, and a lot of very wealthy people uh, moved on there. Another thing about Corinth, it hosted something called the Isthmian Games. Uh, this was very similar to the Olympics, where the Olympics were held every four years, the Isthmian Games were held every two years. And so tourists from all over the, 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 the Roman world would come to Corinth for that uh, every two years for those Isthmian Games. By the way, back then, they didn't have hotels. They didn't have a lot of restaurants and places like that for people to uh, stay. When tourists would come in to attend the games, they would have to stay in tents, which was pretty helpful for Paul. You remember Paul was a what? A tent maker. That's why when he lived in Corinth, if you go read Acts 18, one of the ways he made his living while he was living there was making tents. And that was, you'd say, well, why do people need tents? Because all these people, these tourists that were coming in uh, to stay in Corinth needed a place to stay, and so they would buy uh, they would buy tents. Um, so in less than 100 years, Corinth becomes this 
just this city with this booming economy producing a ton of, of rich people. In fact, when they excavate, one of the things they found when they excavated Corinth is they found all these plaques. And it's, these plaques would say, I, Derek Gray, built this building. I, you know, John Smith, built this building. And they, what they found out, there was so much money there that people would compete to see who could build buildings. And so Corinth was just built, they were building buildings left and right just because people wanted to put a plaque on the building that had their name on it so everybody could see uh, what a great man or a great uh, woman uh, that they were. Um, one more thing, it was known as a city of extremely wild living. Uh, there was a, at least three temples to the goddess Aphrodite. Uh, the largest one employed over a thousand prostitutes. Okay, so again, they, one of their, uh, Aphrodite is the goddess of love, and, and one of the things, the ways that they, they worshipped her is they would employ temple prostitutes. And so that obviously uh, kind of affected their understanding of sexuality. Um, uh, obviously, you had, remember we talked about uh, their, their main claim to fame is shipping. So who, who comes through on ships? Sailors, right? So prostitution was widespread. It was so bad that in the ancient world, the name of the city became a slang for promiscuity. To play the Corinthian became a way in the ancient world to refer to someone who was promiscuous. That's how bad it was. You know, as I was reading this, all the history about Corinth, there was one American city that kept popping into my mind. Anybody want to guess? Las Vegas. It, it is exactly like Las Vegas. In fact, if you go back and read about Las Vegas, Las Vegas popped up very quickly because of the building of the Hoover Dam. And then prostitutes came into Las Vegas, and men came into Las Vegas to work, and this city just became... And even today, you know, what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? We, we, have the, it, we know it's just got this reputation. Things go on there that may not go on in, in other places, or at least not as... So it's a lot... If you can think of, if you want to... What kind of city was Las Vegas... I mean, was Corinth... You can think of Las Vegas, and you would get uh, you would get pretty close. So here's this here's this wild city, lots of money, lots of people coming in and out of it, and Paul arrives there about 50 A.D. Now we know this because in Acts 18 it tells us that, that he meets a couple called Priscilla and Aquila who had just got thrown out of Rome. Um, the Jews were ejected out of Rome. Around, we, In fact, we know the Jews were ejected out of Rome in 50 A.D. And it tells us in Acts 18 that Paul met Priscilla and Aquila who had just recently been kicked out of Rome. So we know about 50 A.D. right in there is the date that Paul uh, arrives in Rome. And Priscilla and Aquila, by the way, this couple that he meets, were also tent makers. And so they kind of go into business together start working, making tents to kind of um, support themselves. Now, he starts preaching. If you go back and you read Acts, t- Acts 18, the first thing Paul would do is he'd find a synagogue, he'd go into a city, and he'd start preaching. And it wasn't long before they wanted to kill him, right? They'd stone him, beat him, whatever. They, they, they got tired of him very, very quickly. And evidently, he must, if you go back and read Acts 18, which kind of talks about all this, he must have encountered some fairly... Uh, serious resistance because uh, he, th- he must have been thinking about leaving because in Acts 18 it tells us that he had a vision in Corinth. It says this, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, and Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. 
For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the Word of God. I love that scripture. Look what Jesus says to Paul. Paul, I have a lot of people in this city. Who is he talking about? There weren't any Christians there. Unsaved people. He's not talking about Christians. There's no Christians in Corinth. Paul's establishing churches. Jesus said, hey, I got a lot of people. He looked out in this crowd. He said, a lot of y'all are going to be saved. See, he's talking about people that are going to be saved, not people that are already saved. So he says, Paul, I got a lot of people here going to come to me. I got a lot of people here going to believe. You just stay and preach. I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. That's what he's talking about. And so Paul says, okay, I'll stay. And he stays for a year and a, and a half. So he stays there till about A.D. 52, somewhere right in there. He establishes a church, and then he decides it's time to leave, and he moves on to Ephesus and Antioch. Now, after he's been away for about a year or two, he receives a letter. Three guys arrive at his house or wherever he's staying one day, and they've got a letter for him. And this letter, uh, I don't know if it was from the church or who it was from, but this letter comes, and it's got some really bad news. He also hears, by the way, from a woman named Chloe, which we'll talk about next week. And she, starts, she tells him about all the problems that are going on in this church. So now, again, there are a lot of problems. It's, the church is a year and a half old, and already there are deep divisions in the church. People are, are quarreling with one another. Uh, they're lining up in different areas. I'm behind this man. No, I'm with this man. No, I'm with that man. They're all, they're all separate, and it gets so bad that they're suing one another in court. They're actually, Christians are taking Christians to court and, and suing one another. That's how bad the fighting and the quarreling has got. In addition, there's, there's sexual sin in the church. There's, it's gotten so bad, there's a man in the church who's having an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. And the sad thing is, is nobody's doing anything about it. They're just letting it go on. This is a Christian brother who says he's a Christian brother, and nobody's doing anything about it. And Paul's, Paul's hearing about all this stuff, how bad things are going. Um, so, and, and by the way, we, we need to keep something in mind about Corinth as we go through this. You understand, when we, when we meet today here at River of Life, we've got 2,000 years of Christian history to rely on. We don't, we don't come in this morning and say, well, how are we going to do church? We do church because we've been doing church for a couple thousand years, right? Now, we change things up. Maybe we take the offering before we sing. Maybe we sing after the offering or something like that. But for the most part, we've, we kind of know how to do church. We, we know how church government works. We, we've kind of, over 2,000 years, that's all been worked out. But keep in mind, they're one of the first churches. They're, they don't have any history to look back on and say, oh, this is how... We do it. So they had tons of questions. They had questions about diet. They had questions about uh, marriage. They had questions about the Lord's Supper. They had questions about conduct in church. The list just goes on and on and on because, they, again, they didn't have the history to do this. And by the way, they didn't have a New Testament to go to either because it's still being written. In fact, Paul, this letter that Paul is going to write them, be, so keep that in mind. You know, we, th we look at Corinth and say, man, well, how could they not know better? Well, they had no history, no New Testament to go on. So they got all, the, you just imagine how all these issues are, are popping up. 
And so uh, Paul understands, man, there's a lot of issues there. They've got questions. They've got sexual sin. They're fighting amongst one another. Uh, we got to do something. Um, a few weeks ago, I, I like to read a lot. and I've got a lot of, of, of Christian news organizations that I've got saved in my, in my favorites. And I, read acro- I ran across this article from Rick Warren, and he says, Too many Christians don't love the church. Too many Christians don't love the church. And that kind of that piqued my interest. And I, I went on and read his article. And I, I pulled out a couple of things there that he said. He said, first of all, he said this. He said, too many Christians use the church, but they don't love the church. He says, we've been deeply hurt by members of the church. We've been disappointed. We can be discouraged. But the church is the bride of Christ. It's the hope of the world, the vessel through which God works out his plan. We have to learn to love the church. For some of us, that means there's people we need to forgive. For others, it means we need to get involved in service. For others, it means we need to change how we talk of the church. Jesus loves his church, and if for no other reason than that, we must love the church also. You know, one of the things that that this made me think about is the fact that if we're honest, there's always a dark side to the church. No church is perfect. What's the old saying? If you find a perfect church, don't go there because as soon as you go, it ain't perfect no more, right? Everybody has problems. Everybody brings their baggage into the church. We all got baggage. Everybody brings their baggage into the church. And and, And the church, by the way, is nothing but people. Just people in relationships interacting with, with one another. And when you do that, you're going to have hurt feelings. You're going to, you're, listen, you stick around me long enough, I will disappoint you. Just ask my wife. She knows that. If I stick around you long enough, you'll disappoint me. That's just, that's, that's human beings. That's human uh, relationships. The church is not perfect because people are not perfect. Now, we know that. It, listen, the church, go to any church, you got, you got attention seekers. People that always want to, hey, look at me, look at me, right? You got other people that are gossipers. You got, listen, the list could go on, on and on. We, there's always a dark side to the church. But here's what I want you to understand. It's always been this way. I hear people say, boy, if we could just go back to the New Testament church. No, you don't want to go back to the New Testament church. The New Testament church wasn't any prettier than any church is today. Okay? It had its problems. In fact, you want to see a messy church? You, you want to see a church that's divided? You want to see a church full of hypocrites and sinners and pretenders and, and malcontents? Welcome to the church at Corinth. That's exactly what you're going to see. Okay? It was a messed up church. And, and by the way, from a human point of view, if you actually step back and look at all the problems, you think, man, there's no way this, thing, this church is going to make it. There's just no way. It's got too many problems. But here's what I want you to see. Paul hears all this, all these issues, all these problems. I mean, you got sexual sin, you got divided people, you got all this stuff going on. Paul hears about all this, and he says, and by the way, he knows there's problems, okay? But he's in Ephesus, and he feels like he is called to stay in Ephesus. So instead of getting up, getting on a boat, traveling back over to Corinth, he writes a letter. And the letter that he writes, he wrote 2,000 years ago, and it's the letter that we're going to be studying for the next few months. And that letter is, uh, is 1 Corinthians. And I want you to read, if you've got your Bibles open, let's read the first nine verses. Now, when we read these verses, 
I want you to think about all the mess that's going on. All the junk that's going on in that church. And I want you to read the first nine verses with me. It says this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, here's my question. What do you notice about the tone of those verses? What's the tone? Positive, upbeat, optimistic. Now, does Paul know who he's writing to? Does Paul have any... Is he, is he blind? I mean, just think about that. This is a messed up church. You would think he'd want to get... Right off the bat and said, this is Paul. What is wrong with y'all? Did I spend a year and a half there driving all this stuff into y'all? He doesn't start that way at all. He starts very positive, very optimistic. Even with all the problems in the church, when we read those verses, you cannot help but notice how positive he is and how optimistic. Now, how can that be? By the way, is he positive and optimistic about the people? No. It's not because they're holy. It's not because they're 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 act, it's not because they're not sinning. It's not because they're walking in unity. It's not because of their conduct that he writes it this way. By the do you think he was blind to the problems in the church? Of course not, because we're going to go and, and read chapter after chapter where he addresses every one of those problems. It's not that at all. See, um, here's the thing I want you to see about this. Paul wrote thirteen letters in the New Testament. And pretty much in every one of his letters, he always sees the church the way Jesus sees the church. He, he never sees just the problems. He's always able to step back and see the church the way Jesus sees the church. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Paul's able to look at that church and see it so positively? Anybody? What, what, why is he able to see past the problems and just see be optimistic about the church. Okay, he's focusing on Christ. Okay, he's letting the Holy Spirit lead him. Anybody else? Why is he so positive about the church? Even with all its issues, all its problems, all its failings, why is he so positive? That's exactly right. Go back, look, go back and look at that verse again. Look at verse 9. Who's faithful? God is faithful. People are faithless a lot of times. But Paul's not, you look at that, he's not. Who, who, who gave them grace? Who gave them peace? Who enriched them? Who called them? Who's faithful to them? Who will sustain them? It's God. It's not, he's, he's not focusing on the people. His focus is always on, on, on God. Again, he wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. In almost all the letters, Paul always begins... By, tell, by telling us who he is relation, in relation to God 
and who we are in relation to God. See, in Paul's mind, he always remembers who we are in relation to God. Okay? Not just, oh yeah, you got issues, you got problems. This is who you are in your relationship to Jesus Christ. By the way, this is very different from what society bombards us with every day. For example, advertising. Automobile commercials want you to think of your life in relationship to the car you drive. Right? Isn't that... You watch an automobile commercial. Boy, if I could just drive that car, I'd be like that guy. Right? Look how good he looks. How confident he is. Right? Beer commercials. I saw one the other day after I wrote this. I went downstairs and I was watching a football game and a beer commercial come on. Notice beer commercials, there's always friends. You ever notice that? You never... It's not some guy sitting at a bar drinking his sorrows away. It's never that. It's always, man, these are our friends. Boy, beer and friends go together, right? See, they want you to think of your life. If you drink our beer, you have, will have all these friends. You'll, you'll have a life like this guy. Life insurance companies want you to think of your life in relationship to family and children, and, and, right? They don't want you to think of it in, this is for when you die. That's not going to sell much, right? Right? And, and listen, a hundred soaps and deodorants and shampoos and foods, one of you think of your life in relationship to your body. See, the world always wants you to see your life in relationship to other people, in relationship to other things. But the New Testament and the Bible is relentless in one thing. It comes back again and again and again and again, and it says your life is not in relationship to how you look. Your life is not in relationship to how many friends you have. Your life has meaning because you're in a relation with God. It, it, the New Testament will not let us get away from that. It, it comes back time and time again to the fact that everything in life finds it tr its true significance in its relationship to God, not in your relationship to things or even to people. Paul never forgets that, never forgets that. So what I want to do this morning with the little bit of time we have left is I want to walk real quickly through these, uh, today's passage, and I want you to notice how Paul relates everything back to God in this verse. Again, remember who he's writing to. You've got to keep that in context. He's writing to a church that is completely messed up. They've got so many problems that from a human point of view, it absolutely looks hopeless. But I want you to, I'm going to walk through these verses real quick and notice how he brings everything back to God. Number one, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. By the way, Sosthenes was, uh, I forget the name of it, but he's the guy that actually writes the letter. Paul, Paul, would, uh, Paul had an eye problem. We, we studied this in Galatians. He had an eye problem. Uh, he couldn't see very well. He couldn't, in fact, he couldn't see really well enough to write. And so he always had kind of a traveling secretary that went with him, and he would dictate the letter, and they would, they would write it to him. And that's Sosthenes. So right off the bat, we see Paul's understanding of himself. Look, look what Paul says. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He knows where he comes from. He knows what he's called to do, and he knows who's called him to do it. There, listen, Paul, if there was anything you say about Paul, Paul knew who he was in Jesus Christ. There was never a doubt in, my, in his mind uh, of who he was. Listen, I believe God wants every one of us to have that same understanding about who we are in Jesus Christ. He wants us to be that way. See, there's a tremendous... I've learned this over the years. There's a tremendous stability that comes into your life when you let the Bible define who you are in relation to God 
instead of letting the world define who you are in relationship to things. Things come and go. People come and go. But God is faithful. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And that's what today's passage is really all about. Virtually every one of the nine verses in today's passage is intended to help us know who we are in relationship to God. Um, in fact, I put down these three questions. In order to help us understand uh, who we are in relationship to God, today's passage is going to answer three questions for us. Just these little nine verses are going to answer those three questions. What did God do for you in the past? What does God do for you in the present? And what will God do for you uh, in the future? For example, what did God do for us in the past? Look at verse 2. Paul says, "...to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours." The word sanctification is related to the word uh, saint, and both of those have to do with holiness, being set apart for God's use. When you To sanctify something like a vessel or a building is to set it apart for God's use. To, set, to sanctify a person is the same thing, to set it apart for God's use, to, to make it holy. Now, usually when we think of sanctification in the church, we think about a lifelong process of getting better, right? We're, we're, we're being sanctified. We're, we're being made more holy. We're being made more Christ-like. And that takes how long? A lifetime. It takes an absolute lifetime. That is true. But I want you to notice something in that verse. Look at verse 2 again. This verse speaks of sanctification as something that has already happened in the past. Okay? What this verse teaches us, and this is very important, what this verse teaches us that, yes, sanctification is, in a sense, a lifelong thing that we go through. We get more holy. We get more pure. We get more washed. We get more clean. We get more Christ-like. That's true. But what this verse also tells us is that when God called us, there was some decisive break with the old way of life. That we were here and that something happened, and now we're here. We're not perfect, but we have been set apart. We have been made holy. We have been sanctified. And in, in later on in chapter 6, we'll get there in a few weeks, Paul is listing examples of unrighteous people. And he lists some people, adulterers, homosexual, thieves, greedy, drunkards, robbers. And then he goes on to say this, And such were some of you, but you what? were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Everybody see that? He's saying, well, something happened to you. You were here, and now you're here. Some decisive break has happened between your old way of life and your, your new way of life. You see, it has to do with experience. You were a drunkard, but not anymore. Are you perfect? No, but you're not a drunkard anymore. You're not a homosexual anymore. You're not greedy for money anymore. Again, you're not perfect. Sanctification, in a sense, is going to take a lifetime. And even then, we're not going to be ever uh, going to be where we need to be. But we were sanctified. We were set apart. We were changed. We were made holy when, when God called us. Now, here's a question. How can sanctification be both a decisive break with the old and yet an ongoing cleanup process. 
Okay? Well, Paul's going to answer that question in verse 2. Let's read that one more time. It says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, that's what God does, He called you, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's what you do. Okay? One of the things we find as we move through the book of Corinthians and every other book in the New Testament, that there's always two sides to salvation. There's something that God does, and there's something that we do. Okay? There's, he has a responsibility, we have a responsibility. His responsibility was, He called me. My responsibility is to what? Call on Him. And we see that right there. Notice that when it, when it points to sanctification, Paul wants to make sure we understand both sides of that coin. There's no conflict between saying that sanctification is a past and decisive thing and also saying that it is a present, ongoing process. When we say that it's past and done, what we're saying is that God decisively called me out of darkness and into fellowship with His Son. He did. That was a one-time thing. I was over here on this side of the line. He called me and said, Come over here in my kingdom, boy. You're mine now. I'm not going to let you go. Okay? That, that was a decisive thing that happened in the past. I was set apart for His use. I was made holy. I was sanctified. Again, am I perfect? Not at all. I'll keep, we'll keep working on that and working on that and working on that. But God did that when He called me. Yet at the same time, in response to His calling me, what do I do for the rest of my life? When I need help, what do I do? I call on Him. Lord, I got this problem with lust. I need you. I got this problem with greed. I need you, God. Help me with that. Everybody see the difference here? He called me. He set me apart and sanctified me. The rest of my life, I'm going to call on him for help to make me more like Jesus. That's why there's, not, there's no problem with saying you were sanctified and you, you are being sanctified. Um, what does God do for you in the present? Let's read verses 3 through 7. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but I just want you to see something. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. What does God do for us today? Everything. You need grace for a certain situation, He gives it to you. Do you need peace in a certain situation? He gives it to you. Do you need to be enriched in your speech and knowledge so you'll know how to talk about Him and tell people about Him? He gives it to you. Do you, or do you need some gift? Do you need to be more merciful? Do you need to be more encouraging? Do you need some gift to operate within the church? He gives it to you. In other words, He equips us for every good work, the Bible, Paul says somewhere else in the, in the Word. So he, he gives us everything that, that we need. What will He do for you in the future? And this is what we want to close with this morning. I want you to look at verse 8 and 9. I, I like this stuff in the New Testament because sometimes these, these little verses are just, it's almost like they're hidden and you read them and if you're not careful, you'll just go right past them and never really see what they say until you stop and look at them in context. It says this, Who, by the way, who is who? God, Jesus. Who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. People ask me sometimes, why should I study the Bible? Why is theology important? 
you know, think about it. If you're saved, and I'm, you know, and why is it important that I study the Bible? But a lot of people, when they hear the word theology, by the way, biology is the study of the body or earth. I don't even really know what it is. Theology is the study of God. That's all it is. But people, sometimes they hear that word theology and say, oh, no, no, that's for them, that's for people in seminaries. And why is it important that we study the Bible like this? Why is theology important? The reason it's important is because it is practical. Remember what it said in that other verse? He has enriched you in all speech and knowledge. Knowing who Jesus is, knowing who we are in relationship to Jesus is so practical, it's unbelievable. It affects every aspect. It affects your marriage. It affects how you operate as a parent. It affects you on the job site. It affects every aspect of your life, knowing who you are in relationship to, to God. In fact, let me give you, let me give you a quick example. <clears throat> One of the most practical issues you'll face in life, and we don't talk about this a lot, is how can you be sure that the faith... Every one of you are here today, and I'm glad you're here. How can you be sure you'll be here in five years? How can you be sure you'll be here in ten years? Listen, I've, I've been around long enough. I've seen people walk this aisle, make a profession of, to Christ, and they'll stay three months. I've seen some stay a year. I've seen some stay five years, and then they're, they're gone. How, how can I know that I'll be here in five years or, or ten years? By the way, there are verses that will make you think. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul will tell us this later. He says, Now I will remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Everybody see that? What's that talking about? It's talking about endurance. It's talking about perseverance. Jesus said it this way, Those who endure to the end will be saved. What's the other side of that coin? Those who don't endure to the end will not be saved, right? See, without perseverance, you will not be saved. But if we can't be sure we'll make it to heaven, then what becomes of assurance? If I don't, and if I don't have assurance, how can I have any peace and joy? Everybody understand that? Listen, if you can't get up every day and know you're saved, you'll never have peace. You'll never have joy. And by the way, if you don't have peace and joy, how can you operate in love and zeal for the Lord? It, it will bring, if you don't know you're saved, it will bring you to a standstill. You will never be, uh, you'll never operate in the Christian life. You'll spend every day worrying about, am I really? It's, it's like um, Paul goes off and he comes back and he says, by this time you are to be on the meat of the word, but you're still on the milk. You're going around the same mountain. Over and over. You can't figure out if you're really saved. You worry about it every day. See, there's no peace. There's no joy. There's no love. There's no zeal. Why? Because you don't have any assurance. How can I have assurance? Can you know that you are really saved and will make it to heaven? Well, of course you can. And the answer is given to us right here in 1 Corinthians 1.8. Paul says, who, and who is who? God will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. That text does not say he will save you anyway, even if you quit. Does he say that? No. What does he say? He will sustain you. He will keep you believing. 
In other words, whatever state you are in now, He will sustain you. He will keep you going. He will keep you believing all the way to the end. See, that's the promise that He gives us. That's why Paul is so optimistic. Yes, he looks at those people in that church that, that, by the way, that he worked with for a year and a half. He looks at them and says, look, man, I'm optimistic because I know the God that saved you is the God that's going to keep you. The God that called you is the God that's going to sustain you to the end. Yeah, we'll deal with these issues. We'll get to that in a minute. But right now, he said, I'm optimistic because I, I can see how it's going it's to end. That's the promise that he gives us. And what is the basis of that promise? Is it our worth? Is it our strength? Is it our willpower? Absolutely not. Look at verse 9. God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How can Paul be so sure we're going to make it to the end? How can Paul be so sure that we will endure? Why? Because God's faithful. It's not you. It's not me. It's not my willpower. We Listen, you and I both know if it was up to us, we'd have been gone a long time ago. That I, we are, what's the old song? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Right? That's, that's every one of us. But Paul says God is faithful. One of my favorite scriptures, 1 Timothy 2.19 says this, Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, that same God that came along and called you, remember at the very beginning, Paul says He called you? That same God that called you out of darkness into His kingdom, He's faithful. He's the one that pulled you out. He's the one, Ephesians 2, 9 says, even when you were dead in sins, He made you alive. He did that. Do you think He just brings you over to the kingdom and then backs up and says, okay, hope you make it. Is that the God you worship? It's not the God I worship. I worship a God who is faithful, who will sustain me to the end, who will keep me uh, to the end. You see, if God has called you, then His faithfulness obliges Him because that's who He is, to keep you persevering in the, in the faith. That's why Paul's so optimistic. That's why he is. If he came to River of Life today... And by the way, we'll see this as we move through this. One of the things that I really hope out of this study is that we'll fall in love with the church again. That we'll see the reason for the church. I don't understand God's ways. What does the Bible say about His ways? They're way higher than our ways. That means we can't even comprehend it. Why did He say, this is the way we're going to do it? I'm going to come down there. I'm going to teach you for a little while. I'm going to die. And I'm going to leave it to a bunch of fallible men and women to carry this thing on. Year after year, century after century, millennium after millennium fallible people who make mistakes, who get offended, who get upset with one another, but this is the way it's going to work. I want us to see again, and I, I, I hope through this class that we can, and I don't know the right words here, but somehow or another recommit ourselves to the church. That the church isn't about, I'm going to come Sunday morning and I can do my Bible study. I'm going to come Sunday at, at, the, at the worship time so I can sing a few songs and hear a message and then go back out. No, I want to come into that day so I can meet somebody and form a relationship with them and disciple them and mentor them and encourage them and admonish them, have mer show mercy to them, walk with them through their troubles. That's what the church is all about. It's not about meeting for a couple hours on Sunday. It's about relationships. That's what it's all about. I want us to see that again in Corinthians. Is it perfect? Far from it. 
but it was never meant to be perfect. It was just meant to be people bringing their baggage. And by the way, what does it tell me to do with your baggage? Anybody know? Bear one another's burdens. It says, you got baggage, I'm going to get up underneath it with you, and I'm going to help you carry it. That's the church. That's the church. It's not, I started to say, wood and brick or whatever, plastic and metal. That's not the church. The church is me carrying your burden, you carrying my burden, you admonishing me, encouraging me. That's what the church is. And I want us to see that here. I want to close this morning by urging you to understand, just the way Paul said, I want to urge you one more time to understand who you are in relationship to God. Don't let the world define you by things and people and clothes and the way you look and the things you own. You are, your significance is in your relationship to God. No more, no less, right? So when you look back, know yourself as sanctified and called by God. When you look at yourself today, See yourself as equipped by God for every good work. And when you look forward, when you look in the future, to the future, know yourself as a person that's going to be kept and sustained by God to the end. Let's pray. Father.